Good afternoon and welcome everyone. I'm Maureen Conway, a Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of our Economic Opportunities Program. And it is my pleasure to welcome you to today's conversation, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, Fulfilling the Promise of Equal Opportunity. This conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program's ongoing Opportunity in America discussion series, in which we explore issues affecting economic opportunity in the U.S implications for workers, businesses, and communities across the country, and ideas for change. We're grateful to Prudential Financial, Walmart, the Cerdna Foundation, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, Bloomberg, and MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth for their support of this discussion series. Today's discussion is the third event in a set of conversations uh, we're calling the History and Future of U.S. Labor Law, Conversations to Shape the Future of Work. In this series, we've been exploring the role labor laws have played in shaping the quality of jobs across different industries, how these laws align with our values about work and opportunity, and what changes in laws or in their implementation might improve job quality and working conditions for all working people. In this third conversation, we'll be discussing Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, uh, which prohibits employment discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin, and which created the Equal Opportunity Commission. This conversation, this conversation really kind of gets at the heart of some of the um, some of our ideals as a nation, and really, you know, ideals expressed in our our founding documents that all are created equal. Ideals of the American dream, ideals that everybody should have a fair chance to work. Um, and a fair chance to earn kind of their shot at their own American dream. And as we all know, we've, we've made progress towards the, these ideals, but we really do have quite a ways to go. Um, we've heard throughout this series, and we'll hear more today, about how our policy choices have both been instrumental in kind of our failings to live up to these ideals, as well as have been instrumental in helping us make progress towards them. Um, and that is really cause for hope for all of us because that means we can make different choices. And we have a really fantastic panel here with us today to talk about how we can go about doing that. So uh, before we begin, um, let me make two quick notes. First, I just wanna mention that we have two more discussions in this series on May 4th. We'll be talking about the Occupational Health, Safety and Health Act the past and future of worker safety and well-being. And on May 26th, we'll have our final conversation that will be both in person and live streamed um, on a worker bill of rights, what we want and how to get there. So uh, please mark those on your calendar. Also, before we begin, begin, let me do a quick review of our technology. All of the attendees are muted. We very much welcome your questions. Please use the Slido box on the right side of your screen for questions. Um, questions can be submitted and upvoted through the Q&A tab. We also know we have an incredibly knowledgeable and expert audience. If you have ideas, examples, resources, experience related to today's conversation, please share your comments and resources in the ideas tab that is also in the Slido box. And finally, we very much value your feedback. Before you leave, please do take a quick moment to let us know what you think of today's event. You'll find in the polls tab, a short survey to, to get your feedback. Uh, we're thrilled with participation in today's event. Thank you to those of you who submitted questions in advance. We'll try to get to as many questions today as we can. Um, 
So please do keep those coming. We also encourage you to participate uh, by tweeting about this conversation. Our hashtag is talk opportunity. If you have any technical issues during the webinar, please message us in the chat or email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. This webinar is being recorded and will be shared via email and posted on our website following this event. Uh, closed captions are available for this discussion. Uh, if you wanna use those, please click the CC button at the bottom of your screen. Um, and now let me introduce our fabulous panel uh, that we have joining us today. We, you, we have their information, um, their bios on our website. So I'm not gonna read all of that, but I encourage you to take a look. They're really terrific. Um, so with us today, we have Rob Berea, Vice President of Inclusion and Diversity at Prudential Financial. Alati Johnson, uh, Jerome B. Sherman, Professor of Law at Columbia University. Alati also recently served on President Biden's Commission on the Supreme Court. Uh, Tanya Wallace-Goburn, Executive Director of the National Black Worker Center Project and also an Aspen Institute Job Quality Fellow. And Tom Sines, President and General Counsel of MALDEF. And we're so excited and grateful to have Michaelia Davis, Director of the Inclusive Economies Program at the Cerner Foundation, moderating today's conversation. Michaelia oversees a grant-making portfolio seeking to advance the foundation's social justice mission. Uh, she's previously held positions at Prudential Financial, and she's also a longtime friend of the Aspen Institute, having worked with us with our colleagues in the Ascend program. So welcome back, Michaelia, and let me turn it over to you. Thank you, Maureen, and hello, everyone. Uh, first and foremost, thank you to the Aspen Institute and Maureen and the Economic Opportunities Program um, uh, for having this series of conversations. We think it's really important at, at CERTNA as we think about what it means to build an inclusive economy. Um, I serve as the director of the Inclusive Economies Program, as Maureen mentioned, and what we think about oftentimes are how do we build an economy in which uh, BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous, people of color, low wealth communities actually have economic power and where race does not dictate the outcomes of uh, their experience in the economy. Um, however, we know that that continues to persist. Um, just, just in February, um, we saw uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released reports that showed that for Black women in particular, we saw unemployment actually rise for them back in January and continue to do so. Uh, for women across the board, we see that fewer women are returning to the workforce post uh, the COVID-19 pandemic onset in March of 2020. And so we're continuing to see how different identities, race, gender, uh, class actually show up in our experiences in the workplace. And as Maureen spoke to, this session is going to talk about Title VII and its role to actually influence and shape our experiences in the workplace to be more equitable um, across the board, regardless of our individual identities. So, you know, and many, I would say, have seen some of this play out um, at the highest level. Uh, you, you, you know, we are very fortunate to have Olatunde with us, um, but the you know, the confirmation experiences of Katanji Brown-Jackson, um, you know, really in many, in many ways kind of shined a spotlight on some of the experiences that uh, Black women and other pe people of color and other um, uh, disadvantaged communities experience in the workplace on a regular basis. And so this is a really pertinent and timely conversation, um, and I'm really excited and honored to have the privilege of moderating it with such an expert panel. So let's go ahead and jump into it. 
Um, so why don't we actually start with uh, Olati, if I, if I may uh, call you, refer to you by your, your shortened name. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and what drew you to working on unemployment discrimination and harassment. Um, and I think for the audience sake, uh, just a little bit of background or primer on Title VII itself um, and some of the conditions it's actually trying to address. Um, and if you can give us any examples of what it looks like in the workplace, that would be really helpful. Yeah, well, thank you very much um, for moderating this panel and for introducing this issue and for having me on the panel. Um, I had to reflect on um, how I came to work on employment discrimination issues. Um, so I'm a law professor at Columbia, but before that, um, I worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee where I worked on employment laws, among others. I also worked at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund where I worked on employment discrimination. And I think if I um, would say a little bit about myself, um, it was shaped by some of the experiences I had um, trying to find um, my job early on, you know, whether I was in high school or right after college. And I really profoundly um, saw how I was steered to particular jobs in ways that some of my non-Black counterparts were not. Um, the influence of networks um, and social capital, um, how important credentialing was and how in some ways you have to be over-credentialed um, as a woman of color in order to have access to those places. But I also worked on issues involving housing and healthcare, um, access, and I saw how much it mattered for the communities that I was collaborating with and worked for to have dignified work um, and um, and how profoundly, not just in an income sense, but um, just in a dignity sense, um, work could shape life outcomes and a sense of efficacy. Um, my first job after clerking was working at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, where I worked on entry level and hiring um, discrimination issues. So I'll just say briefly about um, Title VII. I think most people here know that it's a federal law. It was enacted in 64. It prohibits discrimination on a whole range of dimensions, including race, color, ethnicity, gender, gender identity, pregnancy, sexual orientation, um, and religion. And it applies to all aspects of the of the workplace or many aspects of them, hiring, promotion, firing, but also on the job conditions and treatment. Um, and we'll talk about the ways in which it's limited, I, I'm, I'm sure, as we go on in this conversation. Um, but I'd say broadly speaking, I mean, it provides the ability to have um, a range of remedies that can make an impact to individual workers, to groups of workers, um, and can change workplaces. And it allows a broad range of remedies, um, injunctive relief, which is ordering a change in practices, but also money in various ways, including sometimes punitive damages. And so that is the, the key structure um, of Title VII. And people credit it with, with transforming um, workplaces. It's the fruits of the March on Washington <laughs> and the civil rights movement more broadly. Um, and um, and it's, it has an ecology. It lives in all of our workplaces um, in very concrete ways when people see postings in their workplace on compliance or this workplace should be in compliance with the EO laws or this is how you complain. This is that's a manifestation of that. It's very embedded in human resources um, practices and in um, diversity, equity and inclusion practices, which go beyond Title seven, of course. Very helpful. Thank you. And I think it's helpful to kind of help folks 
really understand how it shows up, but your journey there speaks to the need uh, for this legislation in terms of being directed in certain ways or, and seeing that show up in the work. Um, so thank you. Um, Tom, let's, let's, let's turn to you a little bit as the head of, of MALDEF and can you talk to us a little bit about um, MALDEF's history um, working on these issues and, and really your journey um, to this work? And you might you might be muted. No. Maybe is it on my end? Can other folks hear him? No. Okay. All right, Tom. We're gonna we're gonna have. Uh, hopefully, our tech team can help troubleshoot that. Um, in the meantime, and I'm going to just while, while that's being troubleshooted, I'm going to uh, shift to Tanya really quickly and hope that we can get your your audio on um, in a moment. But Tanya at the National Black Worker Center, you know, you there's a lot of this work that's directly connected to your institution as well. And so if you can tell us a little bit about your background, you know, what does this work mean to you? Um, and are there like when you think about, um, you know, some of the narrative or jargon that comes around like you know discrimination in the workplace are there are there myths that you want to dispel or like real facts that you want people to kind of know now that we're starting this conversation kind of out the gate um to get us started well first of all good afternoon and thank you to the aspen institute for inviting me to be part of this discussion and i would like to start off by saying that my career prior to coming to the National Black Worker Center, um, I had only worked with unions. I specifically moved from Chicago, oh, where I'm from, to the South to organize Black women. And it was in those roles with organized labor that I found myself frequently being in the same position of being the only one, being the first, being defensive and defending my blackness and black people, explaining what was happening with black people and just trying to make our realities visible. And I remember distinctly when Black Lives Matter was just picking up steam, I found myself in a familiar argument with the union leader about not missing this that opportunity to acknowledge the experiences of our black union members and in particular that we should at a minimum make a statement as a union of support especially because so many of our members were black and people of color and the response was basically that black lives didn't matter and it didn't or not that it didn't matter black lives didn't black lives matter didn't really apply to our union members because they had the best contract in healthcare. And while it was true that we had the best, best contract, what was also true was that, at least in my opinion, once again, that these Black workers were not being seen, that the opinion of their circumstances was stronger than the reality of their situation and people were being dismissive of their issues. I think that that's been the history of people of color in this country, and that is still true today. And so what I want people to know is that 
when voices are not heard, when all experiences are not welcomed, when all people are not seen, the blinders that we wear, that's the key that opens up this floodgate of rolling back the rights that we think we have. And these blinders stops the actualization of equity in its track. This work, the work that we do at the National Black Worker Center for me means freedom and ending this notion that some people are less than because they are different or because they're not wealthy. That is so powerful, the idea of freedom, of ending that notion that people are less valuable um, uh, because of a, a particular identity is, is incredibly powerful. Thank you for that, Tanya. Um, Tom, I think it, your, your, your audio, it sounds like may have come back. And so I'm hoping you can jump in and give us a little bit of perspective on Maldef's work um, um, and your personal journey here. Thank you, Michaela. Can you hear me now? Great. So uh, I'm the president and general counsel of MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. So for those not familiar with MALDEF, we are a now 54-year-old national civil rights legal organization whose mission is to promote the civil rights of all Latinos living in the United States. Since we were founded in 1968, it was almost immediately after Title VII was enacted through the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and indeed, before the Supreme Court had weighed in on how to interpret Title VII. So perhaps unsurprisingly, employment discrimination work has been uh, one of the core functions of MALDEF throughout its 54-year journey, uh, including challenging all sorts of employment discrimination in public and private settings. Uh, but the very first case that I was assigned to, I've now spent 24 years at MALDEF, uh, most of my career, but the very first case that I was assigned to as a young staff attorney after two clerkships after leaving law school was a Title VII case. It was to enforce a consent decree with the Los Angeles Police Department on behalf of Black, Latino, and Asian American officers. The consent decree involved some goals for promotions for those groups aligned with their representation in the department because of a pattern in the past that those officers were not being promoted despite uh, the length of time and the experience and the expertise that they had acquired in comparison to white officers who were getting uh, the promotions up through the rank of lieutenant. So I have been involved throughout my civil rights career in employment issues. And I came to this work, uh, I went to law school wanting to be a civil rights lawyer and certainly experiences in employment uh, like uh, one of my colleagues, Professor Johnson, uh, shaped some of my thinking. So my first employment in the legal field uh, was the summer after my freshman year of college when I was hired by a large law firm in Los Angeles to be one of many to go through documents in an antitrust matter. Uh, and the first day that I was working, I was in a car with my supervisor driving a lengthy distance to the warehouse where those files that we would be going through were kept. Uh, and he tried to guess who I was because he didn't know much about me. Uh, and he couldn't tell that I was Latino. I don't fit most folks' stereotype of what a Latino looks like. So he was guessing wildly about who I am. But ultimately, when I informed him who I was, and he remembered my resume, right, my resume, given the activities I was involved in, quite clearly identifying me as Latino, he announced to me that he would henceforth refer to me as Paco 
throughout my employment. And, and in fact, he did that. Now, fortunately for me, uh, he was fired for unrelated reasons about three or four weeks later. So I was only subjected to being called Paco by my first supervisor in the legal arena uh, for about three or four weeks. But I knew enough then about Title VII to realize that uh, his deciding to call me Paco was unlawful. And that if I had any problems with that employment, I sort of had that in my back pocket, uh, ready to go after my employer for allowing that kind of an atmosphere to, to exist. So I have personal and uh, professional background in Title VII going back many decades. Uh, it's a critically important piece of civil rights law, as you've already heard and as you know, uh, and one that has to be maintained as a vital force for continuing to target uh, ongoing discrimination in the form of uh, failure, failures to hire, failures to promote firings, as well as uh, harassing work environments. Well, thank you for that, uh, Tom. And, and um, I know it was many years ago. So I'm sorry that you had to experience that. Um, but I know that there may be someone in the audience listening right now who has <laughs> experienced something very similar. I'm sure our panelists um, here uh, may have similar stories. And so wholeheartedly agree with you on the importance of this legislation in, in shaping our workplaces. Um, and and speaking of workplaces, um, Rob, uh, would love to bring you into this conversation. Prudential is a, a large employer and, um, you know, really curious about both the, com the, the company's history, right, kind of working on these issues, but also similarly, your personal background coming into um, this work focused on equity and opportunity um, um, uh, today. So, so thank you, Michaela, and thank you to the Aspen Institute for um, hosting this, uh, you know, very important discussion. I really do appreciate the opportunity to, to participate. So, you know, um, my background is a little bit different than my, my counterparts, you know, as a man of color as, and served uh, 24 and a half years as, as a retired uh, military veteran and now working in corporate America. You know, my day to day activities are, are truly about, you know, continuing to be focusing on, you know, identifying and removing these barriers to equity and opportunity. I'm from uh, New York City originally, specifically ha Harlem, and I, I grew up, you know, in Harlem during the 70s and 80s, and I was actually bused downtown as a result of the desegregation. It took about 10 years for the legislation and de for desegregation to actually be enacted, and uh, I was the beneficiary of that by being, again, being taken out of my neighborhood every day and going downtown and being around people that I didn't, that didn't look like the, the ones that were on the bus, so to speak, uh, and then returning back every day to my, to my neighborhood. So those common and lived experiences um, for me and my family and, and those like me, um, you know, really inequity was pretty much a part of life. Um, it was everywhere and it was, it was very much front and center. Now, fast forward to my military career, where I was able to travel, you know, not only just in the United States, but also in Europe and Africa, um, just seeing and experiencing inequity and a lack of opportunity for women and people of color um, from a global perspective, um, where, you know, inequity is not unique to the United States. This also kind of informs you know, my practice today. And these experiences I bring to work every day. And I take these lived experiences. I always refer to myself as either an outlaw, outcast, or outlier. Um, and, and, and I'm sure some of you on the panel have felt the same way in the course of your lives. Um, but like Tanya said, we want to make sure people are seen. And I want to make sure that everyone has, that has a voice can be heard, can be respected, um, be valued, as well, more importantly, empowered to thrive. And we kind of forget about that empowerment piece, right? Because we want to make sure people can grow and achieve their particular goals and have an organization and a culture that supports that. So again, even though through the years, you know, I've conditioned myself to find that power and comfort, again, being that outlaw, outcast, or outlier, 
I know many of us who are from underrepresented populations may not have that comfortability or courage to do so. So I want to make sure I lead my team in the organization where equity and opportunity is always available to all. Now, as it pertains to Prudential, and I've been with Prudential a little bit under a year at the moment, but what drew to me to Prudential was many of the things they're doing from a DEI space and one point in how they take their communities. And the purpose of, of Prudential is really to make lives better by solving the financial challenges of our changing world. And we do that by remaining committed to building fully inclusive workplaces where all, have, again, have that sense of belonging and able to thrive. Um, but we also accelerate economic mobility of the communities we serve through the thoughtful and more importantly, human-centric approach in the building of our financial products, as well as our services that we provide, as well as building and supporting our thriving neighborhoods through our many philanthropic, uh, philanthropic efforts, where we have committed over $1 billion to, uh, through our impact investing efforts, ensure we support leveling the playing field for our people and businesses in Newark. We have a very strong partnership with Newark, and much of this work, great work we can see in the city of Newark, where Prudential was a key player, even in the aftermath of the decades of disinvestment and civil unrest in the 60s, around the time, again, when Title VII was actually launched. So since then, uh, and even before then, Prudential continues to have, you know, established these programs over the years with a responsive philanthropic, uh, sorry, philanthropic approach, as well as social investment approach. And again, I'm just happy to be part of an organization that not only gets it, but they also put their money where their mouth is. And more importantly, are, are trying to elevate all the communities, not just particular communities that may or may not use their products. Thank you. And I think the kind of diverse bringing your whole self to your work um, is one of the things I, I heard you describe there. And I think, you know, in, in a lot of ways, Title VII actually allows that to happen, um, you know, in terms of us being able to be ourselves in the workplace. Um, so I want to turn back to Tom now to talk a little bit um, as we shift from kind of some of our introductory remarks to really digging into the, the, the challenges and the experiences of workers um, in the workplace, but the way that this law is really supposed to work, right, to address those challenges, right? Um, so, so Tom, tell us, you know, MALDEF, as you've described, right, has really been at the forefront, really on the battleground, if you will, for a number of legal uh, battles, a number of cases around employment discrimination, um, immigration rights, and, and, you know, shared previous to in our prep work for all kinds of workers, day laborers, you know, uh, car wash operators, um, aircraft cleaners. And I understand that this has also been uh, captured in a recent documentary with Netflix. Is that right? Um, White Hot. Um, and so that's homework for all of us watching to watch that at some point. Um, so can you give us an example, Tom, of like a case um, that exemplifies the kinds of discrimination and harassment that Latino workers face um, and the remedies that they have and, and don't have um, and how Title VII is effective towards that end. Sure, so so let, let me start with a little bit about that Abercrombie and Fitch case, which was 20 years ago and, and is now the subject, at least in part, of this Netflix documentary called White Hot. So Abercrombie and Fitch was in the late 90s and early 2000s, a very popular a retail brand, uh, but they seem to have practices that did not employ people of color. And ultimately we found women uh, as well. So it was a case that involved both race and national origin discrimination, as well as gender discrimination, all under Title VII. Now the White Hot documentary doesn't mention the gender issues, though it does talk a bit about the case in the context of the folks of color that we represented who were 
not being hired by Abercrombie and Fitch. But interestingly, also not covered in White Hot and an issue I think that's still relevant today is the reason that case got so much attention 20 years ago, even got me my first and only appearance on 60 Minutes, uh, was because it was responded to on the conservative side by an argument that Abercrombie and Fitch had a First Amendment right to hire who it wanted, even if that resulted in racial discrimination. And that's because Abercrombie and Fitch was pursuing at the time a quote unquote, all American image that they seemed to define as white and white only. Um, and the argument was that that was a legitimate reason to be allowed to engage in employment discrimination. So this clash between Title VII and the First Amendment was played out among pundits, though obviously not in court because there actually is no First Amendment defense to refusing to hire uh, retail uh, clerks uh, of color uh, or women. Um, but fast forward to today, and, and one issue that we're grappling with at Maldif is again where the First Amendment uh, is viewed by some as somehow limiting the protections of Title VII. Uh, and this is in the context of racial harassment. Uh, we're coming out of uh, an era uh, of an administration that was very openly anti-Latino and a candidate who was elected president who was very openly anti-Latino and would constantly invoke phrases like build the wall. Well, what we found and anticipated would occur and actually found in one of our cases is that these phrases were used to racially harass workers, Latino workers. So Latino workers would be greeted by build the wall, build the wall, build the wall on a daily basis. And it created a hostile work environment. And we use Title VII uh, uh, as well as state law to, to challenge that behavior. Now, the issue is that some would assert, obviously, that build the wall is about a political issue. It arises in presidential campaigns. So certainly, Everyone has a First Amendment right to engage in talking about policy issues like that. And repeating build the wall, therefore, is somehow protected by the First Amendment. Well, that may well be true outside in public, but it certainly does not empower any employee to harass their coworker or harass someone that they supervise by using political phrases, political dog whistles in the workplace, particularly where they resorted to so constantly they create a hostile work environment. So that's one issue in a very real case uh, that we have recently dealt with. Uh, the other highlights another concern with Title VII, and that is it is often not well equipped, at least as it's developed so far, to address issues of multiple bias discrimination. So we had a case where our client uh, had been uh, terminated, we believed unlawfully for discriminatory reasons. But if we were forced to identify a single reason, we probably couldn't uh, because we believe he was fired because he was Latino and he was an immigrant and he was gay and he had HIV. So all of those different bases together, we believe resulted in the discrimination. So if a white worker at that same employer had all of the other attributes, we don't believe that worker would have been fired. Okay. Similarly, if anyone else had one of those attributes, but not all of them together, we don't believe that particular employer would have fired the individual as well. In this case, we believe that all of those factors work together. Now, some of those factors are protected under Title VII, some not so much, but it's really difficult when they all work together as the cause for a discriminatory step, whether that's denying a promotion, denying a hire, or in this case, terminating someone. So we continue to grapple with this issue of multiple bias discrimination, and it closely relates to one final issue I would identify, uh, which is discrimination by proxy. It's often hard, 
and has been difficult for the Latino community to prove national origin race discrimination uh, because so often actions that are targeting the Latino community are actually couched in other terms. Oh, well, I'm not discriminating against you because you are Latino. I'm discriminating because you don't speak English well, or I'm discriminating against you because you have an accent and it offends my customers, or I'm discriminating against you uh, because you are an immigrant and I have an anti-immigrant clientele. Uh, it's difficult when the discrimination, which happens for all groups, but I would have to say is particularly characteristic of the Latino community's long time experience under Title VII, but this issue of discrimination by proxy is also one we continue to struggle with at MALDEF on behalf of our client community. Thank you, Tom. It sounds like you've just highlighted some important gaps um, in the legislation in terms of what it can cover and cannot cover um, and real experiences that people have on the ground. And I, I, I want to kind of bring some more of those into this conversation. So, Tanya, I'm going to turn to you. If you can, what are some of the, you know, similar to what Tom has shared with us, what are some of those experiences for the workers that you work with? And um, can you kind of speak to us a little bit about, you know, we have this labor market and workplace climate that is very different, right, than when this law was when it was written. Um, and, you know, how has discrimination and, and harassment against people of color changed or not since this was um, enacted and, and through the March on Washington? You know, that's a, a, um, a really interesting question about how it's changed or not changed that, that we um, grapple with and hear frequently. And, and I don't think that the question we should ask is, have things changed or not? I think the question is, is our work done? And to that, I would say, no, we still have much work to do. The, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom was a protest of racial discrimination and to show support for major civil rights legislation that was pending in Congress. And when you think about anti-civil rights imagery, I would ask what comes to mind. For many Black people, it's a noose. The hangman's noose has come to be one of the most powerful visual symbols directed against African Americans. Its origins are connected to the history of lynching in America when violence or the threat of violence replaced slavery as one of the main forms of social control that whites use on Blacks. The noose is among one of the most repugnant of all racist symbols. So here's where I'm going and why I'm talking about the noose. If you found a noose in your workplace today, and remember the March on Washington, that was in 1963, today is 2022, would that constitute harassment? Under federal and state laws to provide a racially hostile environment, an employee needs to show that a rational jury would conclude that the workplace is saturated with discriminatory intimidation, ridicule, and insult that is severe or pervasive enough to change the conditions of employment and create an abusive work environment. And frequently, because of that, our workers are told, no. One noose in the workplace is not enough to make that conclusion. And so you might say, Tanya, well, that type of blatant racism is a thing of the past. And today we're more progressive or at least more tolerant and or educated 
to do better. But I would submit to you that that's not the case. In March of 2021, Stevie Stucks in Matthews, North Carolina, filed a lawsuit against his former employer, Pike Enterprises, which is an electric company um, in North Carolina, after he experienced multiple incidences of racial discrimination, racist interactions with his co-workers, slurs, a knife pulled on him, and a noose hung on the back of his truck. After he complained, he was demoted, his wages were cut, and then he was fired. Just this past February, um, California's Department of Fair Employment and Housing, which is the state's civil rights regulator, filed a suit against Tesla, alleging that Black workers in the company's Fremont facility were paid less than white workers, denied advancements, and raced, faced daily racist abuse, including a noose drawn in the bathroom next to a reference that um, of lynching and a racial slur. Last May, again, focusing on Tesla, an arbitrator ordered um, Tesla to pay $1 million to Melvin Berry, who was a Black worker at Tesla, who was called racial slurs daily by his supervisor. Last October, in a San Francisco federal court jury awarded a Black Tesla um, worker, uh, Owen Diaz, $14 million after experiencing daily racial or racist epitaphs in his workplace where colleagues drew swastikas, swastikas and um, left racist graffiti, including nooses around the, um, the facility. Let's keep going around the country. Last November in Utah at Facebook's parent country, Meta, a worker wrote on a portable toilet that today was kill a racial slur day and hung a noose at the work, work site. In 2022 at Facebook data centers in Iowa and um, Ohio, similar activity occurred. Last year at a construction warehouse project for Amazon in Connecticut, eight nooses were found on the site within one month. And uh, the expansion of the Las Vegas Convention Center in 2020, someone wrote racist graffiti on the office of an African-American foreman. And these are just a few experiences that demonstrate that there is so much more work that needs to be done. And while I'm not sure if there is an increase of racial um, or racist workplace activity or just an increase in reporting, what I do know is harassment and discrimination and employment based on race, color, national origin, sex, and religion is not a thing of the past. Personally, I struggle to see the differences between these workplace offenses and hate crimes. If somebody came to my house and hung a noose from a tree and spray painted on my garage door, today is killer N-word day, that crime would come with a penalty enhancement. And the same should be true of the workplace. The FBI has elevated hate crimes to its highest level national threat priority. And doing so has increased resources aimed at preventing and investigating hate crimes. And so I would say that similarly, a renewed commitment 
and prioritization of Title VII offenses are needed, as well as a greater emphasis on prevention rather than enforcement to create safe workplace environments. So powerful. Thank you, Tanya. Those examples were very, very real um, to help us kind of see it, right? And, and, and almost imagine what those folks are experiencing. And, and it's, 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 it's hard to hear, uh, but these are very real, as you've just laid out for us. This is a real-time experience for so many folks. Um, and, and I want to actually just, uh, Olati, I want to go come to you, actually, because what, what, Tanya and and um, um, and Thomas has just kind of laid out for us are a set of experiences that um, really you know need legal remedy, right? Um, and Tanya laid out some legal solutions that uh, some le some legal outcomes, excuse me, that came as a result of pursuing uh, these cases. Uh, Tom also talked about some of the legal approaches, and so Olati, I'm hoping you can kind of um, Let's let's use this moment to maybe dig a little deeper into um, Title Seven and really think talk a little bit about the enforcement around it um, and its initial intentions. You know what what is what is it equipped to do or not to do? Um, you know, and how has that changed over time? Um, given what you've heard from um, Tom and Tanya, um, and then I'd love to come back to you, Rob, um, after this set of remarks. Yeah, it's, I think it's um, those stories really remind us um, that in many ways, the formal protections of Title VII are not themselves enough to assure equity in the workplace. I mean, that's the central theme. I mean, and I think this was really visible to people um, around Me Too, right? Um, why is it that people have to leverage um, social media? Um, in order to alter the conditions of their workplaces. In some sense, um, much of what people are describing, certainly what um, Tanya and Tom just described, um, violates um, Title VII. And so the question is, why are the structures um, to prevent this? Why are they not doing their jobs um, adequately? And so when I think about this from a little bit more remove um, in the sense of I'm not litigating these cases now, but just surveying the literature and also talking to a lot of people in the field, um, a general story emerges about both the powers and the limits of Title VII. I mean, so one kind of um, story that we often tell, and it was really shaped me and why I went into this work in the first place, was that you can have a formal set of laws, but they're really hard to enforce in on particular dimensions or in particular workplaces. So um, so it can be, for example, that it's very hard to um, enforce hiring discrimination or protections against hiring discrimination because it's often invisible to people when they're experiencing it. So you need some other mechanism, maybe testing or you know, some sort of audit mechanism to really vet that out. Um, it can also be that certain sectors are essentially unregulated. Um, so I work a lot with, um, with uh, people who work um, with domestic workers in domestic settings, a lot of times they're not even covered um, by Title VII. Um, they might be covered by other kinds of um, labor and employment laws, but um, there's the formal non-coverage, and then there's the fact that a lot of what goes on in that sphere is hidden. Um, there's not like a formal human resource officers. 
Even a lot of service sectors like restaurants operate effectively that way. They're highly informal workplaces um, in ways that can subvert enforcement of, um, of Title VII. And then a, a second set of problems has to do with the enforcement mechanisms. And there's a lot more to say about this. I mean, the EEOC is a very powerful agency on some, on some dimensions, but not on others, right? And I can go more into that. I'm an admin law person, so but I, I, I won't um, say much more about that. Um, the most obvious way it could have more capacity is that is to be better funded. Um, um, but um, there are many ways in which by design that wouldn't even really solve the problem because its powers that are given to it are not really strong enough. Um, but then there's also courts. And I think that that was implicit in what has been said that sometimes the judicial standards really emphasize a very narrow view of what is discrimination that doesn't get at a set of practices. We used to say these are practices that were subtle, but sometimes they don't even seem that subtle and they're not, you know, they're segmented in ways um, that, um, that defeat uh, uh, liability. Um, and then just, uh, you know, there's a lot more I can mention. Um, and we'll end at some point, I hope, on a note of, of optimism about some possibilities. But, you know, one of the challenges that has really emerged in recent years, um, or there's been a lot of focus in recent years, has been on arbitration and the ways in which um, mandatory arbitration, um, not um, arbitration that employers select and employees um, freely bargain to, um, the ways in which that takes um, things out of the dimension, dispute resolution out of courts um, entirely. So those are some of the challenges of the kind of enforcement regime. Super helpful. And I've read somewhere that uh, mandatory arbitration has actually increased in employer kind of contracts um, over the last few years. Um, so great points. And, and I think the idea that you're you know, what capacity do these institutions, do these agencies and have to enforce legislation and their capacity to do that? Um, and what sectors are or, or not, right, capturing this, I think is, is really important. Um, and you said something else that I that is really helpful as we turn to Rob, you know, the, the ways that, you know, some of this is about what can be seen or not seen, right, in the actual practice. You used hiring as an example. Um, and, you know, when I think about a company, um, and, and, and employers um, as, as like, you know, being leaders in a, in a lot of ways and actually dictating how those practices show up, um, you know, I think that's a real big part of this equation. So, um, you know, Rob, I, I know you have probably experienced a lot of, of uh, change in your time in, in Prudential watching, you know, since the murder of George Floyd and um, you know, the increase in focus and diversity and inclusion among many corporations, um, but Prudential kind of having a very longstanding um, kind of stake in the ground around these issues, um, you know, is coming at this a little bit differently, right? So um, would love for you to talk a little bit about what the company has learned kind of through that journey of doing this work internally um, around advancing opportunity and creating a workplace that doesn't have um, these issues around discrimination and harassment. Um, and what, you, you know, what have you learned from your experience in Newark and that, you know, can help us understand how we address these systems um, of racism and discrimination um, in the workplace? So thank you for that, Malika. Uh, so, you know, 
like you said, many organizations, you know, post George Floyd's murder, um, made uh, some bold statements, you know, um, have made some declared what they will do from, you know, a support mechanism, um, helping communities out of color out. Um, I would say that, you know, what we've learned in Prudential is, you know, instead of being a top down uh, exercise, we really started with our, our base employees. Um, before we actually created these commitments, um, you know, uh, against uh, racial e uh, inequity. So, you know, in, in probably about 125 different forums where we engage about 7,000 or so, which is about half of our U.S. population, we kind of engage with our, our employees just to understand what they were feeling and more, more importantly, what they were experiencing with a friend. Because when we talk about di diversity, equity, inclusion, it's really about understanding the employee experience that leads to, again, that empowerment to thrive. So we started there first, and as a result, we actually announced nine commitments to advance racial equity as a result, again, of these uh, these conversations, both with uh, leaders as well as our, our broad employee base. Now, these commitments uh, span many different facets of the business, you know, our talent practices, you know, how we design and deliver products. Uh, I'm sure we recall many of those uh, very unfortunate um, miscues with organizations that does not include diversity inclu inclusion in the de design and delivering of their products. Um, also, where we invest our money in the public policy work that we do. And, and lastly, you know, how do we support the community institutions, you know, working to remove those persistent obstacles, um, primarily to our Black economic empowerment, but also for other communities of color. So again, this is what we did as a company, and, and these commitments build upon our, and to your point, you know, all of the great longstanding work that we've done as a, uh, as a partner within Newark, as well as, you know, within our, um, our product and service delivery, to make sure that we drive diversity and inclusion within the company to, again, eliminate those structural barriers. Now how, do we, now, how do we continue to do that? Because making a statement is, is one thing, but actually doing the work and making sure it's impactful is another, which, you know, it's great to talk to talk, but we know, and we already see kinks in the arm in many organizations where they're not really walking the walk and maybe going even in the reverse direction. So what we're doing is we are consistently evaluating and improving our talent practices from hiring, promotion, performance management, development and compensation to ensure, again, the equal opportunity for all employees. And then we actually establish representation goals, which many organizations find trouble in doing. Well, and we want to make sure we not only do that at uh, you know the junior levels, but more importantly the senior most levels, because you can't be what you can't see. And an and part of that as well is we are tying our executive compensation to those goals, which is, again is a leading practice within industry. And uh, also too, how we again inform our our, our employee bases. Uh, we're one of the few companies that actually mandate anti-racism and other inclusion training for our U.S. employees. Many times we, they're just offering, but we mandatory, we have, we have mandate that these, um, these courses be taken so they can have that foundational understanding of what it means to be an anti-racist, to be an ally and understand what micro inequities are so that you can understand, you know, again, how, um, you know, death by a thousand cuts with many people of color and women actually deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, in addition to that, what I do really, truly appreciate about our racial equity commitments is that we also take action in society. So we attempt to uh, um, attack large scale societal challenge and making sure again, that we are uh, a purpose-led company. So we accelerate our social justice policy agenda. We focus on criminal justice reform. We, um, we uh, as well as police reforms, addressing racism and voting rights and also closing the racial wealth gap. So what we have learned during these processes is that, you know, it's great that we have leadership involved and more point resources about this, it's an all employee activity. You know, regardless of your role in the organization, whether you're customer facing or not, um, everyone is, is has a responsibility on this inclusion journey for the organization. And it takes time to get everyone on this path. 
right? But we have to embed and not bolt on. And a lot of times in, uh, organizations bolt on DEI efforts, but you have to embed it and be part of the, the planning discussions to ensure that both the people and the business strategy, uh, coupled with, again, accountability and transparency, is really the only true way to achieve the desired impact within the organization. So we've learned a lot over the past two years as a company. And my own uh, development as a DI practitioner has only been strengthened by being able to have now these many different ambassadors and champions who really want to make a difference in the company and honing them in into our overall strategy for the organization so we can win as a team. I think that holistic approach speaks to a lot of the different ways that I know that um, you know, companies see themselves uh, in the world. It's their employees. It's how they show up in community. It's how they work with their vendors. It's their entire culture from top to bottom. So it's really helpful to understand how you've both committed to that, but also what are the actual levers, right, that are really pushing you to make sure that the action is being taken. So it's great to hear that. Um, I want to bring in at least one question from the audience on this segment before we before we move on. And, and there was one question around the challenges around uh, Title VII and its enforcement that came through the audience. Um, and someone asked, you know, what challenges do the gig economy and the use of independent contractors present to enforcing Title VII? And so I'm wondering if any of our speakers want to just quickly address that question um, before we before we move on to the next. Tom, I see you, you've, you've raised your hand, please. It's a great question because it is a serious challenge for Title VII. Uh, because it doesn't apply to someone who's truly an independent contractor. There are other protections. We have some experience here at MALDEF uh, with Section 1981, recent litigation under it, which is a post-Civil War amendment uh, that protects the right to contract without discrimination. Uh, but there are limitations to Section 1981. You don't have access to the EEOC or any of its uh, powers and authority. Um, so the problem is when gig economy workers are wrongly characterized as independent contractors and can become an issue uh, when there is racial or gender discrimination or other prohibited forms of discrimination uh, in the gig economy uh, going on. So certainly that issue, that ongoing issue of who's an employee, who is a contractor appropriately under the law has a nexus to these important questions of the evolution of Title VII. That's, that's really helpful because I think, you know, many Many of us have seen kind of how the workplace has shifted drastically to actually lean into more contracted uh, forms of employment. And, and I think that that presents another set of challenges that we, we should start to think about. Um, and, and I want to kind of keep us moving in this in this conversation. I mean, Oleti, can you, you know, we know that the workplace, you know, bringing ourselves to the work, um, you know, we are all intersectional beings, right? And um, I know Tom gave an example earlier where there was a client who had a number of identities that some were and were not covered under Title VII, right? Um, and I think we recognize that this, uh, the intersecting identities that we bring to work are not just covered under Title VII, although we're talking about that today. So I'm wondering, like, are there other labor laws and other types of worker rights that we should be thinking about in this conversation? Um, and and how those rights do or do not kind of align with the intent of Title VII and prevent workplace uh, harassment or discrimination or or not? Because um, we're really just thinking holistically about what what should this law be doing for us? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, given the other programs um, that have been ha um, had for part of these seri this series, I think this is a really nice question that fits into that. Um, there is a profound connection between Title VII and what happens on the employment discrimination front and other conditions facing employees. And I think that we sometimes segment um, those, um, the issues of discrimination from the issues involving wages and other kinds of labor practices, but we shouldn't. I mean, practices that have a lot of labor violations, as I'm sure Tanya can attest to, um, and others um, are make themselves very vulnerable um, to discrimination claims. Like they're the same kinds of, of workplaces and workplaces that have forms of collective bargaining can still be discriminatory workplaces for sure. There's a long history of discrimination, um, uh, sometimes by labor unions um, and, and sometimes in labor controlled workplaces, but um, it does provide another avenue um, for advocacy. So one of the, um, and worker empowerment. Um, one of the things I wanted to highlight that I think is um, interesting is that a lot of the social movement work at the state and local level around improving the conditions of workplaces can have a tremendous impact on race, gender, and other forms of equity. So an example is some of the reforms that have to do with, with tipping um, in restaurants. There's a profound connection between tipping and sexual harassment um, in the workplace. Um, anything that allows workers control of their schedules or sick leave um, policies, wage increases, all of those can influence um, how workers are treated more broadly and their capacity to advocate for themselves in the workplace. They also increase the representation of groups in the workplace, which itself has an impact on discrimination. So workplaces that have more women, women in powerful positions, there's less sexual harassment. Um, I don't know the data if it holds as to race, but I can imagine it extending in that way um, also. So I think it's really important to think about the conditions of, of workplaces. This is shifting a little bit, but I just want to mention it before, just because it, it was in response to Rob um, and the work that Prudential is doing. I was thinking about how a lot of the ways, the legislative moves that have been most important um, in recent years um, have been around trying to increase reporting and transparency and training. So in response to um, some of the developments around sexual harassment, um, as well as racial harassment, um, legislatures have mandated more of this. And um, I won't ask Rob to weigh in on whether or not this should be mandated or not, but what I'm really struck by is that what he articulated was is far more robust than what those regimes are doing. I think they're important to have reporting requirements, um, mandatory forms of training, um, and those kinds of things. They're very important. But um, you're talking about um, a collaborative endeavor where you did an audit, a self-audit, and then had a set of practices. And I think those are models that um, would be good for a lot of employer um, um, workplaces to adopt. And I think state and local legislatures and maybe even the federal legislature for some category of workers um, should consider adopting those kinds of robust mechanisms. I not agree more. And Rob, I don't know if, you, if you'd if you wanted to chime in. She said she was not going to ask you to respond, but I'll, I'll take moderator's privilege and see if you wanted to make a comment. No, I, I appreciate that. And again, um, you know, this, you know, what we have, again, learned over the past few years from a DEI perspective is, you know, 
how do we engage the entire organization to understand how best to solve the challenges that we have within the organization? So what you mentioned there, uh, Olati, you know, it's that holistic, you know, we have to do this as, 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 as one, right? It can't be because we're trying to check a block. We can't do this because, you know, we're worried about how our stock, stockholders are. We have to do this because one, it's the right thing to do. But at the same time, we're actually helping change society. Right. So if you think about the work that we do in our, in, our, in our four walls within our organization, I'm looking at this work as being a change agent, not a DEI agent, but a change agent, because we all know that this is a societal problem and challenge. So if we can, again, change behaviors within our walls, guess what we can do inside our society? So I'm have my altruistic um, uh, purpose in this is how do I help change the world by changing our organization? And in doing so, being inclusive to the point where we are embracing each other as opposed to hopefully not doing the opposite. I, that's, I think that should be uh, uh, everyone's motto. What can we do within our own walls, right? Um, and then to have an impact on the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, similarly, I want to transition us to ending on a hopeful note. Um, and so I'm sure, and we already have some questions in the Q&A that speak to this, but, you know, I'm sure that folks are thinking, like, what is it that I can do? What can I do within my own walls? You know, what... You know, I'd love to, Tanya, as a person who works with a lot of workers and organizing, you know, what do you want to say to people who want to be more supportive in addressing discrimination in the workplace? Or what advice do you have for organizations who may be listening um, that are involved in helping people kind of get jobs and, and supporting them as they navigate these challenges? Um, you know, what advice would you have for those folks today? I love what Rob said about changing the world to change. Um, by changing our organizations. I wrote that down. I'm going to keep track of that and use that frequently. You know, at the National Black Worker Center, in our fight to end racism and discrimination in the workplace, we know that what Alate said is correct, right? That the law is hard to enforce. And so we can't wait for the law to catch up and bring justice. We have to create it for ourselves. And that fight for justice includes and acknowledgement that black worker issues impact all workers. And any change in the law that seeks to invalidate Title VII for blacks would also impact all of the protected groups, such as age, the Age Discrimination Act and the Americans with Disability Act. If we're not all our brothers and sisters keepers, then we all lose because all of us are connected. So, so what can people do? The first thing that I would say is be explicit and don't wait for something to happen or be brought to your attention before you speak up. We can all pay attention and speak up on a regular basis. And what does that look like? Um, looking at our or into our organizations, does your organization or workplace have a position on Title VII? How do you proactively signal to the workforce what will not be tolerated? What's your investigation process? Do you have a zero tolerance, tolerance policy in regards to race and racism and discrimination? Creating a code of conduct that states your values and that is explicit in stating who to contact when those values are not being adhered to. And then I would add for, for workforce development organizations, in addition to placing people in jobs, it's taking, it's also um, 
taking a closer look at the industry and the workplace. Don't shy away from asking um, the, the hard questions and having that difficult conversation. For example, what asking what internal supports are there for people of color? Having a conversation with employers about safe workplaces and expanding the definition of safety beyond trips, slips, and falls to include race and racism. Asking what's the process for addressing racism and discrimination. And then checking with the, the workers that are placed to ask them about their experiences as people of color. Training workers and employees on how to raise concerns with their employer and document what they're seeing and hearing. The best thing that we can do is something that we can all do, and it doesn't require, you know, some special uh, training or a law or act to be passed. What we can all do is not stand on the sidelines, not be afraid to have the conversation and not be afraid to make change within our organizations. I love that, um, that, you know, empowerment, right? That knowing that you have a voice, um, it actually speaks to one of my favorite Alice Walker quotes, which is that the most common way people give up their power is by thinking that they don't have any. Um, and, you know, everyone has a voice and a role to play. So thank you so much for that. Um, you know, this, this law that we're talking about is, you know, approaching 60 years old. Um, and uh, Tom, I want to turn to you because at that time they were not probably not thinking about immigrants um, when they were writing this law. And so, um, you know, we've made some updates to some of them um, um, and they've changed. But, you know, in the past, you've talked about like civil rights 2.0, um, given the world we're in now. Like what what does that look like? And, you know, um, as it relates to labor law and Title VII, how could kind of a revisioning of our civil rights really help foster a more equal society? Well, I think it involves uh, recognizing that all irrational discrimination has to be eliminated in the workplace. Title VII is an aspirational law. It, it envisions and incorporates the vision of a workplace free of discrimination on the bases that are mentioned in the law. But I think we aspire to a workplace that goes beyond that. Uh, and that's what Civil Rights 2.0 would get us to. It would root out all irrational discrimination it would eliminate discrimination by proxy that I mentioned before, where folks have the very real and probably accurate feeling that they're facing discrimination on the basis of race or national origin, but it's being couched in different terms. I should note that I think there's a very powerful conversation going on over the last several years uh, about hair and natural black hair and how that relates to race discrimination. That's a form of discrimination by proxy and that we're having that conversation in the country, I think it is powerful toward moving to eliminate all forms of discrimination by proxy. And, and we can aspire to Civil Rights 2.0 even without uh, getting a legislative change. Uh, we can do it through the courts. I think we should mention that Bostock, uh, the recent Supreme Court case, was an extraordinarily important and progressive move in the interpretation of Title VII uh, to cover more than what many believed it covered uh, in the workplace. But even without court action or legislation, we have the power that Tanya very eloquently described. And the only thing I would add to that is, uh, we haven't talked about the fact that Title VII protects employees against retaliation. So if an employee takes the steps 
that Tanya's described and others to enforce what Title VII prescribes to reach the workplace that we aspire to. They are protected themselves by Title VII, whether or not they are people of color or women or among the groups that ordinarily use Title VII to protect themselves against discrimination. There are retaliation protections for everyone. And also just to add, as Tanya implicitly mentioned, we all have power, even if we're just consumers or clients, uh, to try to get to that uh, aspiration of a workplace that's free, not just of the discrimination specifically proscribed in Title VII, but aspiring to a workplace that's free of all irrational discrimination whatsoever on whatever basis, especially where it's a proxy for discrimination on grounds that we have known and believed in this country for decades and even over a century. Um, if you go back to post-Civil War statutes like Section 1981 that I mentioned before, where it's closely tied to things that we have in our laws recognized as illegitimate. I, I, that is so powerful because I think what you're speaking to is is the reality that yes, the the law in its in its current form has flaws, but it is aspirational. We should continue to move towards that aspiration beyond kind of the itty bitty nuts and bolts that's included to really just eliminating you know how discrimination shows up in all of its forms. Um, and I think that elimination, the discrimination by proxy, is something I know. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet that others on this on, <laughs> on this panel have experienced. I know I have experienced personally in my own career, and you know the the Crown Act um, I think is a, is right uh, in many ways an, an outcome, um, not complete outcome, but um, <laughs> some of that aspiration that you're speaking to. But we, you know, we shouldn't need a specific act. We should rather have you know laws that protect us more wholly. That's just my opinion. Moderator's privilege there. Rob, I'm going to turn to you a little bit. Um, you know, we, we're getting close to the end of our conversation here. And, and, you know, there are lots of, you know, there are companies who may be watching this or some businesses. We actually got one question from the audience about what small businesses can do to actually address uh, some of these issues in, in their workplace. But, you know, we want to make sure that as companies are embracing this conversation, it is more than just a checkbox, as you said earlier, right? Or or a PR stunt. So can you talk as we head into like looking ahead, you know, what, you know, what are some of the ways that uh, Prudential has learned about, um, you know, incentivizing better behavior, right, from employers um, around workplace discrimination? What are ways that, you know, regulations or policies could actually um, uh, do so with other employers beyond Prudential's um, and the work you've done to date? So may, may I just ask you know give me some advice against those uh, those business leaders and more importantly you know how do you build more equitable and inclusive workplaces because in, if you build the equitable and inclusive workplace by default you should remove those behaviors that lead to discriminatory practices right so that's that's the connection that we are hoping that by building strong again a culture of, of being inclusive and having equity as part of you know your your end state goal that again that would remove again the opportunity to discriminate. Um, even though, yes, we understand that it's more of a, from, from a personal perspective, you can't manage everyone's personal behaviors, but again, making the culture right and more importantly, enforcing the culture. So there are three things that I would say to advice to, to again, to business leaders about that is one is not just review your talent and business practices, but interrogate them. And I, I, stole, I stole that from um, the mentor in my head, Mary Frances Winters, when she talked about being an, uh, an ally, right? You have to interrogate your processes, ensuring that there's no bias in the system, because bias will always be present because it's a human characteristic. 
But if you establish a culture within your business uh, where culture when bias can be called out and addressed in real time, as well as being swift and removing, again, you are building again the trust within your organization as a result of being an inclusive work uh, workplace. Um, your leadership um, should not just be saying the right thing, but actually doing the right thing and holding them uh, accountable to that, right? So just like culture resides in the shadow of leadership, so does inclusive behavior modeling, right? We must, it must occur at all levels with senior leaders being those you know, uh, examples to follow and emulate. Um, but more important, making sure it permeates all the way down to your lowest levels, because again, it's great, it's happening at the senior level and there's buy-in and talking to you know, the external stakeholders as why it's important. But again, it has to permeate all the way down and we always talk about the frozen middle, the middle manager, making sure that those individuals have just as much skin in the game, so to speak, when it comes to inclusion and equity. And lastly, which many businesses have trouble with, um, and being in an, an insurance company, you know, being risk averse, we have to deal with it ourselves, is how do you be transparent and accountable and, and make accountability for, again, all of the strategic uh, initiatives and outcomes that you want to do for the actual organization. So don't be fearful of being of transparency, right? With your, your data surrounding, you know, DEI. Um, you're building trust by being more transparent and building that trust within the organization, which leads again to that accountability piece, which again, you know, doers do what checkers check, right? Uh, and what gets measured gets done. So without the accountability piece, that's the sticking point to have that impact that you're looking for, for your DEI strategy initiative. And I just want to reiterate that everyone has a role in an organization's inclusion journey. Um, so build into your talent and in your business operations, key actions and activities and provide the tools so that all can execute and as well as have that accountability for the overall, overall organization's efforts. Now, these are the three foundation elements of a DEI strategy, but I also have to emphasize that it has to be, you have to be optimistic, but also realistic in your organizational goals. You know, um, while again, remaining um, patient and persistent, right? So again, you have to be optimistic but realistic, but you have to be patient and persistent because these systemic barriers to equity have been ex in existence for centuries and it cannot be undone in, in a few months or in a few years. We have to be on this path. That's why we refer to it as a journey as opposed to an, an end state goal because this will have to continue on until we, we have the, that human nature within our organization as well as in society as well. That is that I hope everyone uh, captured those those three points because those were very poignant. I think, you know, the reality of of uh, data, the ability. I love interrogating your processes, right? Because we just acknowledge that humans humans have bias. We all do. Um, and how do you actually set those up in the structure to address them? I see Maureen has joined us, uh, has returned to join our, our discussion. Um, I, of course, I wanted to, I could keep asking questions. This, this panel is just so excellent. Um, uh, but what I, I guess we have, we have reached our time. So I want to just very quickly thank Tom, Tanya, um, Olati, and Rob for um, allowing me to pepper you with questions um, and engage in this conversation. And Maureen, I'll turn it back to you. Thank you so much, Michaelia, and thank you also to Tom, Alati, Tanya, and Rob. I have like pages of notes that I took while you all were talking. That was really an amazing conversation. So really appreciate you sharing all your experience and wisdom with us today. It was really fantastic. Um, I also want to thank my amazing behind the scenes colleagues, Matt Helmer, Tony Mastria, Victoria Prince, Yuri Chang, and Adrian Lee. Um, these 
producing these events are really a team effort and I really appreciate all the hard work you all do. Um, many thanks to everybody who joined us today. Thanks to the folks who are tweeting about this on social media. It's great to hear what resonates with you. A reminder, please do fill out the uh, um, feedback survey and the polls tab on the Slido box. Um, we really appreciate hearing from you and, and love to um, hear how things landed and how we can do better. So um, please uh, let us know what you think. And please join us again. Another reminder that May 4th, we'll be talking at Luchas just next week. Who knew May was coming so fast? Uh, we'll be talking about the Occupational Safety and Health Act, the past and future of worker safety and well-being. And May 26th for our Workers' Bill of Rights, what we want and how to get there. Uh, so uh, we will hopefully see you then. And thank you again.